How many of you actually enjoy going to weddings? Yeah? Come on, you're shy. Have, raise your hand. I went to, I just kind of social experiment here. Yeah, the, the ratio of women to men greatly outnumbers. It's not quite equal. There's something, women really love these things, going to weddings and seeing the dresses and candles and flowers and all that. Really, men determine how excited they are about the wedding based upon the menu if a meal's going to be served. Am I wrong? I mean, that's it's just the way it is. Especially the cards where you RSVP and it asks you what kind of steak or fish you want. Now we're excited about the wedding. It's just kind of the way it works. Um, this may sound weird to you, but it, it's the truth. Don't tell anybody. This is kind of a preacher's confession. If it... If I'm asked to do a wedding or funeral, funerals are easier to do. That, I know that sounds weird. It may even sound terrible. I don't want it to sound terrible. But weddings are so formal and so everything is choreographed and everything has to be perfect for a wedding to, to work out right. You know, you've got to enter at the right time. You've got to stand and sit and, and do all of that at just the right time. This is that woman's day. If anything goes wrong, she remembers it the rest of her life. I, I, when I do premarital counseling, I always tell the groom, there's a reason all the guys behind you are dressed just like you. Because if you pass up or don't show up, we just move the next guy in and go on. You're just furniture in a wedding. Because weddings are so formal and important. First wedding I ever did. A good friend of mine asked me to do the wedding. I was honored to do it. We get halfway through the ceremony, and I realize I forgot to ask the audience to sit down. You know, they all stood when the bride walked in, and we were halfway through the vows before I realized these folks are still standing. To Delana's credit, she tried to get my attention and tell me, but you guys know Delana. She's not that tall. And when everyone is standing in front of her, there's no hope of seeing her. I did another wedding here in this congregation. It was not one of our members, just a student from Oklahoma Christian. And it was a young couple. I didn't know if they had money to afford uh, rings and everything. So when we got to that part of the ceremony, I'd, I just skipped it. I didn't want to embarrass them and say, is there a ring? And someone would say, no. So I just skipped it. We got to the end and they said, uh, we do have rings, you know. Weddings are so important, and they're filled with symbolism, and everything has to go right. And the symbolism means something to the couple. It means something in our culture. I was a groomsman in a wedding once. They went to light the unity candle, and it wouldn't light. And you wonder, is this a bad sign? The symbolism is very important so you heard Doug read the text this morning from John chapter 2. And in Jesus' day, weddings were very important to them too. They were filled with symbolism, importance, feasting, and celebration. And when anything goes wrong in a wedding, it's a big deal. It's not just something to casually overlook and say, well, wasn't that funny? Especially in a culture such as Jesus, where all of these things, like today, they're very symbolic. If something, something big goes wrong at a wedding, you wonder if it's a sign of impending doom for your wedding, for your marriage. There's a lot at stake in weddings going off just right. 
And in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding. We don't know his relationship to the couple. We know he and his disciples receive an invitation. Typically, it's historians sometimes tell us that it was kind of like a village event. If someone got married, everybody in the village, everyone in the community was invited to this wedding. And so Jesus may have been in the town, he may have been in the village, he may have been in Canaan. So he and his disciples get an invitation, but here they are at the wedding. But the wedding in the first century was a big deal. It was a week of feasting, people often say in the history books, that that when they had a wedding, they had a wedding. And it was celebrated with lots and lots and lots of food. Delaine and I got married at 7 o'clock on August the 7th, 1999. You know why we got married at 7 o'clock? Because I was told if you get married at 6 o'clock, you have to feed everyone. (laughs) But in Jesus' day, you get married and you feed the village. And you... You put out food and you celebrate. This is a big deal. And there's a big problem. And Jesus' mother reports it. They're out of wine. How embarrassing would that be? Here you're, you're throwing a wedding. All the people from the community are there. And people, people come to the wedding both to support you and to celebrate. And there, you know, there are other people there measuring up your wedding. There were over 450 people at our wedding, and I didn't know half of them. And half of them didn't know us. They came to see what kind of wedding Linda Hott would have for her daughter. You know those people are there. And women, you know it. She walks down the aisle, and you think, well, my dress was prettier than hers. Right? Yeah, you're not going to admit it, but it's true. <laughs> the symbol of everything about a wedding is a big deal. And, and this is a social crisis to run, out of, to run out of wine. Now, preachers and Bible class teachers all want to debate, was it alcoholic wine? Would Jesus go to a wedding that had alcoholic wine? That's a fun question to pursue. That's not John's interest. This is a tragedy. Because in the Old Testament, one of the signs, Proverbs tells you this, one of the things about gladness of heart and celebrating is wine. Proverbs chapter 9 tells you that. And what does it say to have a wedding, to begin this wedding, this great moment in your life, and to run short on the very symbol of gladness and happiness? This is a tragedy. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine, do something about this. Now, it's interesting because we, we also don't know, is Mary somehow related? Does Mary somehow have a, a connection to the bride and groom? Is she somehow responsible? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But for some reason, Mary sees this as the tragedy that it is. And she tells Jesus, you, you've got to do something about this. And Jesus says, woman, this isn't really, it's not my time. It's not my, my issue. Now, don't be offended that Jesus calls his mother woman. It's actually a term. Mary is never mentioned by name in the Gospel of John. She's mentioned twice here and at the end of the story of John at the cross, and Jesus refers to her the same way. It's a standard sort of way of speaking. It's not my hour, Jesus says. But Mary says to the servants of the wedding, 
You do whatever he asks you to do. And this is where the tragedy turns to a great story. There are these six jugs, these six kind of cleansing pots, if you will. They're used by Jews to wash and cleanse, wash your hands, wash the pots. And, and Jesus says, take those, fill them up with water. And they do just as he tells them to do. And they draw out the water, take it to the master of ceremony, if you will. And lo and behold, now we have wine. Now the gladness has returned to the wedding. It's a great story. It's an odd story for the Gospel of John. In a sense, at first reading, it's a very interesting human interest story. You know, Jesus goes to weddings. Jesus, Jesus doesn't stay at home. He doesn't log. He goes to weddings. He celebrates with culture. He goes to do the things we do. There's someone getting married. Jesus gets an invitation, and he goes to the wedding. That's impressive in and of itself. It tells you something about Jesus and his characteristic and his interaction with people. That's interesting in and of itself. But I think John is telling this story for a different reason. And I know this because John tells you this. When you get to the end of the Gospel of John, there are two statements, very interesting statements. The very last verse of the Gospel of John tells you, you know, Jesus did a lot more things than I've written in this book. In fact, he did so many things that if I were to write him in the book, the world couldn't hold the book. He did that much stuff. We just don't have time or space to write about it. But earlier in the Gospel of John, just one chapter earlier, in John chapter 21, John says, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written, these are written so that you may come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and through believing you will have eternal life. So of all the stories John could have picked, of all the miracles Jesus did that he could have written about, why does he pick this one? And why does he start with a wedding miracle? I mean, let's face it, there weren't a lot of people who knew about this miracle in John chapter 2. You know, some miracles Jesus does, like the feeding of the 5,000 in just a few chapters, 5,000 people hear about this thing. The wedding, they're the, they're the guys who have the water pots, and there's the guy at the master of ceremonies, but he doesn't seem to even know where it came from. Why start with this one? And water to wine is a very impressive miracle, but let's be honest, in, in the next chapter, or in the next few chapters, Jesus is going to open the eyes of a blind man. He's going to let a man who's never walked before walk. He's going to, he's going to walk on water. He's going, to, he's going to raise the dead. Those are impressive miracles. John, of all the miracles you can write, find some more like those because those are impressive things. And when people hear that, they'll say, there's something about Jesus we've got to believe. So why tell a, a miracle about water and the wine in John chapter 2? Come on, John. It's interesting, but aren't there other ones you could have started with? John chose this one for a reason. There's something happening here. As we go through the Gospel of John, you'll notice that Jesus is going to perform seven signs. And that word sign that John likes to use is very important. Don't miss the word sign. If you're driving down the road and the gauge on your car says you're empty, and the light comes on that says, get gas or walk, right? And you pass a sign that says gas 30 miles ahead. 
Do you feel better? There's hope. But the sign hadn't fixed the problem. The sign points to something else that's supposed to fix the problem. And that's the thing about signs. The sign themselves is not the message. The sign, John says, point you to Jesus. If you get the sign and miss Jesus, you've missed everything. Don't get so tied up with the sign, so mixed up that you're so impressed with the sign that you miss what it's pointing to. Jesus goes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. It's a sign. And we get confused with the sign itself. We argue about the sign itself. Was it alcoholic? Was it not? Why does he start here? Why does he start there? Uh, was, the, was the miracle actually in the dipping or were there actually that many jars of wine? Don't get confused with the sign. What is the sign pointing to? This story is fascinating on a number of fronts. And I think I know why John starts with this one. At least some hints, I think. They're scattered throughout the story itself. I'll give you three. First of all, Jesus is at a wedding. A wedding. Yes, weddings are interesting. Yes, it's the blending of two lives. But here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he begins his work at a wedding, at a wedding banquet. Do you know what image God uses in the Old Testament to speak of Israel as his people? Oftentimes it's that of a marriage and that of a banquet. Isaiah does this often. Hosea does this about his wife and God being, God being the bride, the, the husband of Israel. Jesus himself will do this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a great banquet being thrown. Or, or Matthew chapter 25, it's like the, the ten virgins and, and waiting for the bridegroom to come. And, and Jesus is often talking about the coming kingdom and the manifestation of God and God's work here on earth as it is in heaven as that of a wedding and that of a marriage. John chapter 1 is just ended with Jesus telling Nathanael, you think you've seen impressive things, I'll show you greater things. And what you're going to see is angels coming and going from heaven. You're going to see the presence of heaven on earth. Is how John chapter 1 closes. And without missing a beat, we go into this wedding imagery and that of a banquet and that of a feast. I don't think it's an accident the ministry of Jesus starts in that environment and with that imagery. It's a feast. And not only that, the second image that I think is very fascinating that sets up the rest of the Gospel of John, they're out of wine. Here we are at a wedding and at a celebration and, and this great moment, and that which represents God's blessing and that which represents gladness of heart is utterly absent. And when you read the Old Testament, several texts, Jeremiah talks about how there's celebration and feasting at the first harvest of the fruits and of the wine. Joel and Amos talk about a time 
where wine will be coming down from the mountains when God's kingdom is established and when the presence of God is shown. If you want to see God's glory, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, they all talk about this time of great abundance of God's blessing and free-flowing of wine. The image of blessing. And here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry in Cana, surrounded by Jewish people, his own people, hoping and waiting for God, and they're missing wine. I don't think it's an accident John picks that image. And I don't think it's an accident that John picks the jars. You always have to be careful when you're reading into things like this. But when Jesus tells these servants... To go get the jars. John tells you these are the jars, the Jewish ceremonial cleansing. And he even tells you there's six jars, and those jars hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. You do the math, and that's 120 to 180 gallons of water. It may be sheer coincidence. That when you read the Jewish Mishnah, which talks about ritual cleansing, and there are 150 pages in the Jewish Mishnah, how to wash your hands, how to wash the pots, how to wash all this thing. And it talks about a mikvah, which is the, the total burial of the person. That when you go to do the total absolute cleansing, you need to have 150 gallons of water to do that. How many gallons of water are there in John chapter 2? Here we are in Israel supposed to be celebrating the blessing of a union and a marriage. And we are out of wine. And here Jesus is the Son of God, the very presence of God in the flesh, the very presence of the coming of God and the kingdom. He's about to begin that ministry which brings about the kingdom of God And where is he needed most? In a place that is empty of wine. The sign points beyond itself. What better way to start the ministry of Jesus than at a wedding? And you notice what Jesus does? John tells you that it's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. I don't know how many people were at this, at this place, at the wedding. But I know that that's an awful lot of wine. 150 gallons. Why so much? Because the sign points beyond itself. Because when Jesus brings blessing, Jesus brings abundance. Later in the Gospel of John, John is going to say, John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come to give you life, and to give you life more abundantly. This first miracle of Jesus in Cana. I think John is setting the table for everything you're going to see in the rest of the Gospel of John. What Jesus told Nathaniel that you're going to see greater things than this. 
And what Jesus told Nathanael is that you're going to see angels coming and going. Heaven and earth are going to be interacting in a way. And then lo and behold, John begins by telling you this image of a wedding, this image of a marriage, this image of wine. Jesus is there. He's present and he's blessing it abundantly. Now watch him do it in creation. Watch every miracle that unfolds by Jesus. And what he's doing is exactly what begins in this marriage ceremony. He is beginning to marry heaven and earth together. He is beginning to provide abundance, more than average, above and beyond the blessing of God. And those Jewish ceremonial jars that usually provided the cleansing, Jesus provides the true cleansing. And at the words of, Ma- of Mary, you do whatever he asks you to do. And as Jesus begins to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to walk on water, it is the marriage of heaven and earth. And it is the abundance of God's blessing. You see, one of the problems with Jesus in our culture today is we get so connected to the signs and the little things that are supposed to point us to Jesus. We're fascinated when God blesses our life in some way, when God, uh, when God gets us through struggle, when God helps us out, when God provides for us, when God reconnects relationships. And we see all the things God does, and we get so tied up in what God does that we miss who God is. And what John is setting the table for with this seemingly simple miracle, this seemingly simple sign, is that we don't miss the meaning behind who Jesus is. Don't get so caught up in the small stuff that when God blesses you, you miss who God is and what God does. And that, and that in the words of Mary again, you do whatever he asks you to do. That true blessing comes when we do what Jesus calls us to do. Amen. That we live the way Jesus calls us to live. That we don't get so focused on the sign that we miss Jesus to whom the sign points. And all signs of John chapter 2 are pointing to the marriage of heaven and earth and to an abundant blessing given by Jesus Christ. Don't miss what the sign is pointing to. What if Jesus really is the marriage of heaven and earth? What if Jesus really is the one who gives abundantly If that's the case, how should we live? What should we do? Will we follow? That's what John is asking you and me at the end of this marriage. It's no coincidence that exactly from here in John chapter 2, John is going to go to the temple The temple is the place where Jews believed heaven and earth were combined. The temple is the place that's supposed to be the sign of God among us. And when Jesus gets there, he has to cleanse the temple. Why? There's no wine there. Oh, John doesn't tell you that, but there's no blessing of God there. There's supposed to be God's presence, but they're not. 
And what Jesus does in the temple is an attempt to do what he's done at the marriage. It's an attempt to do what he's trying to do in our lives, to bring heaven and earth back together and to bring in the abundance that God sent to give. It's no coincidence that that story follows this story. Brothers and sisters, we are the church of Jesus Christ. And we are called to be that place where heaven and earth are joined in a beautiful marriage. A place where God's blessing is flowing in complete abundance. And a place where cleansing comes through Jesus Christ. It's more than just a story of a wedding. It's the story of the kingdom of God beginning in its presence. That's why John starts there. What a great place to begin. This morning, I want to offer you the invitation of Jesus Christ, who is and was and will always be the marriage of heaven and earth, and who calls us to be part of that marriage in and of ourselves, to be part of the kingdom of God in which he provides the cleansing and the blessing, to join that work, to join that kingdom in faith in him and giving our lives to him. And as God's church, we invite you every week to make that choice, to begin that walk, and to be part of the marriage of heaven and earth. If we can invite you, if we can help you do that this morning, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.